I'm Reverend Bill McDonald. I had a most unusual, I mean, even in the world of near-death experiences, this one is not typical in any way. There was no life reviews. There was no tunnel of light. It wasn't traveling in this mystical body, you know, body of light or something. This was a total manifestation of something uniquely different. And to tell this story and to get you on the same level of understanding that I had going into this, I want to kind of take you on this journey. And this journey takes place on one of my multiple trips to India. And in 2011, when I was in India, I had a major heart attack. I was introducing a guru in India to uh, Indian and Western audiences in Mumbai and Pune and other cities. And uh, after introducing him in, in Mumbai at one place, at, when I got off st stage and I'm in the audience out of everybody's view, I collapsed. I had a major, major heart attack and I ended up going to ER and spent the day there. And then, and then I was told that I need to leave and go back. I need surgery. I have all kinds of stuff coming up. And so my last day, this is just the beginning of the tip of the iceberg. But I felt that if you're really going to understand this experience, then you should journey with me from the beginning on this thing. So the beginning of this journey is really me leaving India. And I'm going back to the ashram, which is in this jungle area, not too far from Pune. And I packed up all my stuff and I'm waiting to leave. And I'm sitting in the kitchen, this ashram. And I'm sitting there and there's probably a half a dozen people in there with me. And I feel like somebody's watching me. Somebody's looking at you. You know, you're in a movie theater someplace where somebody's staring at your back. And you turn around and go, what are you staring at my back? Right? Like, you can feel somebody staring at your back. Well, in a loving way, I felt somebody was staring at me. So I turned around. And they're looking at, in the body form, not a vision, not a ghost, not an astral body, but actual body body. I'm looking at... Paramahansa Yogananda's guru, Shiriteshwar. And for those who've read autobiography or know anything about that, but in essence, Shiriteshwar died in the 1930s. He was a highly evolved yogi, taught Kriya Yoga meditation, and he was the guru of many, many great gurus that followed his line. But there I was, I turned around, and, and he's standing there, and he's got his hands behind his back, and and he's got his arms folded and he's looking at me and I'm feeling loved. But I'm also knowing that I just had a major heart attack. I'm just home from the ER and I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm closer to death than I think. You know, maybe death is just a shadow away, right? And so there was a couple of girls and they were from some Scandinavian country and uh, beautiful women, just nice people. They they were into the exercise and doing the yoga postures, and they were kind of new into uh, into the meditation. Not real serious meditators, but they were, you know, good people. You see anything behind me? And they go, "No, we see nothing behind you. Nothing at all, right? Nothing. Sense nothing. Feel nothing. Okay." But then there was this other guy from Texas. He's he'd been meditating a long time. I knew him a while. Young man. I said, "See anything behind me?" And he goes. He says, "Wow." He says, "It's like a." It's like a sunshine, this blast of light behind you. And I'm feeling this great love. It's just emanating. It's just love, love, love. 
and light. It should be blinding, but I, I'm not blind, but I could see it's just light. And so I thought, okay, great. And then there was another young man, a, a Jewish lawyer, Brian. I looked at Brian. I said, Brian, you see anything? Brian been on the path a while. He's a pretty serious meditator. And he looks at me and he says, you ain't going to believe it, Bill. I said, no, no, try me. He says, well, I, I see Sheba Teshmar standing behind you. It's like, you know, like an astral body, like a goat. Anyway, it's him standing there. And, and he says, I feel this great love. I said, okay, and he says exactly what I see. So there was a case. I'm looking at the world and I think of this great spiritual presence is there in this space with all of us. Two people couldn't see him at all, couldn't feel nothing. One person was developed enough they could feel the energy, they could see the light, but couldn't see him. The other one could see like an astral body, you know, kind of like that etherical body and feel the love. And then I'm there seeing a physical body, a physical manifestation of this great great avatar or whatever level that uh, Sewer Teshwar was at. And feeling such love. So we pack up, I go, I thought that's kind of an interesting way to leave India, right? Because that was going to be my last time in India for a long time. Got on the airplane. You could imagine, I just left ER with a heart attack and I told the airlines that and they let me fly all the way to Europe and then from Europe, I get on another airplane and I fly all the way to Denver, Colorado where, believe it or not, I'm I'm having trouble because I get a, a blood clot <laughs> in my lung. Surprise! Right? Anyway, so I'm having trouble, and I collapse at the customs there in, in Denver. And uh, six hours, I'm with paramedics. You know, they take me in a room. They work me over to make sure I rest for four hours. And believe it or not, I tell myself, well, I'm going to Sacramento. I'm checking into a hospital. They actually let me get back on the airplane. The blood clot. It's like you, you can't make these things up. It's like, what? Anyway, so looking back on that, it's probably not a good idea, but uh, I got on an airplane and I flew back. Uh, I get to Sacramento. I, I, I go and see my heart doctor, and he takes one listen to me. And next thing you know, boom, the wheelchair comes down. He's wheeling me into ER. Boom, I'm put into ICU for four days, ICU before they could even do anything with me. Because it was that weak, it was that bad. Realize for anybody that's had open heart surgery that's watching this, or you know somebody that has, nowadays with the germs companies, you go in for open heart surgery, four days, you're out of there. Four or five days, you, they, they send you home, you heal at home. Nobody stays in the hospital more than three, four, five days for even heart surgery. They kick you out. So I'm there four days, they haven't even done anything yet. So then I put another ambulance, take it to another hospital, where the next morning, they're going to give me a quadruple bypass surgery. I wasn't even sure what that meant. And the next day at 6 o'clock in the morning, they stripped me down naked and rolled down into this very cold, like an icebox operating room. Apparently, I don't know anything about these things, but apparently they keep the temperature really low so it doesn't grow bacteria, whatever. But uh, it was cold, and uh, I noticed they all had jackets and sweaters on, and then they had their the gowns over and the medical gowns and, and stuff over them. So they were warm. I was freezing. 
They put me on an ice cold metal table with a very thinnest sheet of, of a sheet of linen on there. And I'm just cold shaking. And I go, can I ask a couple of questions? You're like, what's going to happen here, right? So he says, well, he says, you know, we're going to, and this guy did not have great bedside manner to say the least. And he goes, he says, I'm going to uh, rip your chest open. And I'm going, rip? Oh, well, I'm going to take the saw and, and he's got these things, he's going to cut the ribs. I don't know. Anyway, I'm sawing and cutting the ribs. He's going to take, and he's got a chest expander and he's going to expand them and he's showing me the tool like I needed a narrative on this, right? And show and tell. And he's going to extend. He's got his hands like this. I'm going to stretch your chest open. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to stop your lungs and I'm going to stop your heart. I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to do that. Ice water or something. I don't know. Somehow he was going to stop the heart. He was going to cut the arteries and hook me up to a blood lung machine. It's going to oxygenate the blood, pump it back in so the lungs wouldn't work, the heart wouldn't be working. I go, really? He says, yeah, yeah. He says, he says, basically, I stop your heart, I stop your lungs. You know, it's kind of like we kill you. And I go, really? He says, ah, don't worry about it. As long as electricity is going, we got these machines running. I go, so I got all these imaginary thoughts going already, like, what, what? I said, well, am I going to feel anything? And he said, well, you know what? 95% or better don't feel anything. But, you know, there's that 5% or less that because when you're on the heart-lung machine, they have to give you less anesthesia. So you're not dull to all the pain. So there's some people that claim that they feel pain. But don't worry about it. It's only less than 5%. <laughs> you know, that's going to go, right? So in my mind, I'm going, oh, good gracious. So anyway, so now the guys give me a shot. And he says, count backwards from uh, 100 down, right? And I get to about 96, 95, I don't know. And then, boom, blackness, boom. I'm standing part of a Shiva temple in southern India. And the first thought that comes to me is not like, how did I get here? <laughs> What's going on? First thought was, I looked down to see if I'm dressed because I was naked on the table. And I'm thinking, well, I'm this middle of this thing with this crowd of people around me. Do I have clothes on? So it shows you where my mental ability was at. So there I am standing there in this temple square. And then I look at the square. And I see the Shiva temple and I see the, the bull. And I realize that the year before, 2010, when I was at the ashram, Guru had sent me to go get my naughty palm leaf reading done, which I didn't know anything about at the time. It's basically a reading of this palm leaf that was done, uh, these predictions on your life that was done 5,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, by these great, great, great rishis. They predict these people come in the future and they give them advice. That's another whole story. But basically, the prediction when they talked about future for me, meaning like the next year, 2011 or so, that I was to travel to this Shiva temple. And when I got there, I was to walk uphill for two to four hours and get to the top of this where I would find the rishis, all the rishis. I think there's 18 of them. All the rishis would be waiting for me. And the rishis just basically holy men, these ancient ancient guru guys that uh, wrote these 
predictions and everything. And there, there were great teachers and great gurus at the time. But there was, I believe, 18 of them. Augusta was like the first one. So I figured I got six to eight hours. They told me this operation was going to go. So I go, what am I going to do? Let's walk uphill, right? So I start walking uphill. I'm bumping into people. So I feel people. I have a flesh and body. I'm not an astral body. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a, I'm not traveling in you know, link to nothing. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. I'm an actual physical sweating, you know, body walking. And people see me. I see them. I mean, there's eyeballs. We're looking at each other, moving through people. So I go up this hill for a amount of time. And I'm feeling as I'm walking up there, I'm feeling inside my, my ribs and Inside my, my, my chest, I'm feeling hands and tools and things and movement, like something's going off my body back in Sacramento. But here I am in southern India. I get to the top of the hill, and there's these 18 rishis. And then there's another guy, 19th guy, the guru that sent me to the reading. He's there. I go, okay. So I walk in there. And this one guy kind of taps me on the head. And I was told in the reading that when I found the rishis, when I hiked up the top, I'd find the rishis that I'd have no questions for them because I'd be reawakened and I'd know all the answers that I already knew all this stuff and they would just awaken me and I would know it all. And so I got there and literally I had no questions. I sat down there somewhere on the logs, somewhere on the stumps, somewhere on the rocks, somewhere on the log. And there was a sacred fire that they had going, and they were, you know, sitting around this fire. Nobody was really talking. So I sat down, I was enjoying the peace and the bliss. And the guru that sent me for the reading comes up to me and he goes, Yeah, you can skip a few beats, but don't give up heart. And I'm going, What? What? And he kept saying that, he kept repeating it. See, at the time, I was in a great deal of pain. And this was about my, maybe my, I don't know, ninth, 10th, 11th heart attack at this time. So, I mean, I've been going through a lot of stuff. So, this was just another bad one. So, finally, he tells me, he says, you know, you got to go back. There's, there's stuff waiting for you. And I go, well, I don't know. And pretty soon, the clouds open up again. Got reminded in my visions of my first near-death experience when I was a child in the hospital for a year. But this was different. These clouds opened up and I heard a voice, a beautiful, feminine, angelic voice. Definitely female. It was just beautiful. And it goes, Bill, just stop breathing. Let it go. Just, you've done enough. You don't owe anybody anything. You have no karma to pay for it's all done. You've done what you were supposed to do when you came here. Let it go. Give up the heart. I promise you bliss, peace, joy, pain-free, loving, blissful eternity. Just let it go. Let it go. You don't want anybody anything. And then the, the guru, the guy, the guy that's, that uh, gets sent me the reading goes, no. Skip a beat, don't give a part. I go, why? She's promised me bliss, love, peace, joy. I mean, my job is done. 
And he said, well, I promise you something greater. He goes, what, what do you promise me? I says, I promise you more pain than you ever had in your life. I go, what kind of sales pitch is that? You're promising me more pain? He says, you're going to have pain greater than you ever had. He says, before you had pain, you found yoga ways and methods to dissolve the pain, and you overcame it. You could bear it. was a big deal. From now on, you're going to have to relearn how to handle pain like a regular person and develop a way so you can teach others. And I go, why? So, so I could give you more pain. <laughs> it's like, what? So then I go, well, I don't know. And then he kind of waves his hand. And then there's all this sea of faces, men, women, old, young, children, a few dogs, a few cats, all kinds of, you know, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, uh, Europeans. I mean, you name a place in a country, all kinds of people. And I was told the only thing they had in common was they were going to be touched by something I do. If I'm not there, they won't see one of my videos. They won't be healed. They won't have my smile. They won't have my words of inspiration. They won't have my friendship. There's something that they're going to miss if I don't hang around. I don't own anything. But by me being there, I would add something to their life to make their journey easier. I'm going, yeah. But, and then the guru going, yes, and more pain. That's why all that is going on, that big debate. All of a sudden, on the operating table, apparently they're getting ready to clear, you know, restart the heart. And all of a sudden, whoop, I'm, I'm jumping by myself, jumping up. And I'm now about a thousand pounds. And I'm laying on the cold, ice cold operating table where I'm finding out that my arms are strapped down. I'm strapped down. I can't move. My eyes are taped shut. At least they felt like they were. I don't know if it's my imagination. I felt like my eyes were shaped uh, taped shut. I had a big tube down my throat so I couldn't talk. And I'm hearing the anesthesiologist tell the doctor, hey, doctor, he says, I think the patient's come too. I think he's, he can feel everything now. And the doctor's going, nah, let, let it go. It's really got another 40 minutes to an hour to go. Let's just get it over with. And here I'm feeling everything. I'm feeling them, you know, trying to put my rib cage back together and wire it. I'm feeling all this stuff going on, you know, and staples and stitches and got all this stuff going on. And, and the doctor's saying, Don't worry about it. So another 40 minutes to an hour. And I'm in my mind, because I can't talk, I'm going, help. <laughs> hey, I feel it. Hey, I'm screaming in my head. Because I'm feeling everything they're doing to me for the whole amount of time. And that was the longest 40 to minutes to an hour. I couldn't even tell you how long it was. It felt like it was three days. And then they finally get done, and I'm in their recovery room, and I still got the tube down my throat until they finally take the tube out. And I'm feeling greatest pain. As soon as I was promised more pain and I came back, it was there. It was pain, 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 pain. Well, my wife finally gave me uh, some little ice chips, you know, ice cubes, little pieces of ice cubes. And they had me, you know, I put them on my, because I was just, my throat was raw. And I had tubes everywhere. I had tubes in my chest, tubes in my neck. I had staples and stitches everywhere. And I wasn't doing well at all. So the next 10 days go by. Back about three weeks, I have five blood transfusions. I'm still not out of the hospital. I'm still drifting out. And every time I go to sleep or lay down, 
I'm back in India. It's like, boom, I'm immediately back in another body. It's like I buy locate, if that's the correct word. Not just there in a dream. I'm actually physically in a second body in India at that temple or at or on the uh, the hilltop with these gurus. And I'm hearing the same conversation over and over again from the guru. Don't give up heart. You, know, you skip a few beats, but don't give up heart. The woman tell me, I promise you bliss and all that. And I got all this stuff going on. And frankly, by this time, even though I'm married, I got kids, I got grandkids, there's a part of me just saying, you know, I paid my dues. You know, I'm ready. I'm, I'm not fighting it. If it's going to go, it's going to go. That was my attitude. So it was about 11, 1030, 11 o'clock at night, one night, uh, after I've been there about another three weeks, and the phone rings by my bed. They just put me on a gurney to take me down for an MRI or something to figure out why I'm still accumulating fluids. And I said, I, I got to answer that. And they go, no, no, no. I said, I got to answer that. So I pick it up. And I hear this voice says, this is Gornoff in India, that guru, right? Like I know so many of me had an arrow down. So, and he goes, first words he says is, you can skip a few beats, give a part. I go, what? He says, you could skip a few beats, but don't give a part. I go, holy cow. That's what I've been hearing for three weeks, right? So he says, and that still wasn't enough to get me. And then he goes, I just told 100 people here. I sent them down up to the temple to pray for you. I told them that I was going to heal you. Don't embarrass me. In other words, don't die. You embarrass him because he just said I was going to be healed, right? Uh, okay, I can't embarrass the guru guy. So that's when I decided I was going to get better in a few days. I checked it out. So that was kind of, it was an experience that kept going because there was something else happened that was miraculous a few days later that was witnessed by people and there were several other things happened. But the bottom line was this. Once again, when I'm getting ready to leave this world, rescued by love, just the memory of love keeps me going. Just the memory of that celestial cosmic hug. It's enough. It's enough. So when going gets tough, I just remember that I'm always loved. And so I go around the country teaching healing. It's just teaching people about love. Love is the true healer. Love is the real guru. Love is the reason we exist. Love is the only thing that's real. I understand why I had these experiences, whether I want to share that or not with the public. because. We're all in a battle with the ego. We all think we're special. We all think we've been selected. In truth, the only thing I really know for sure is I'm loved. And all these experiences I've had, and the near-death experiences are just that. They're near-death experiences. I've had much greater spiritual transforming experiences that, are, that would make these experiences that I just talked about pale in comparison. The state of samadhi is even, it's, I mean, and you're fully physically in good shape. It's, it's a whole different world. But the thing, life is not about experiences, spiritual experiences or near-death experiences. It all gets down to, at the end, who do you love? Do you love your enemies? Do you love your friends, family, neighbors? Not who loved you, because that could be influenced by gifts, by fame, by fortune. But who did you love? Ask people, who do you love? You know, who did you love? Not who loved you. Because we're only here to love and serve. 
So people ask, why are you special? All these things happen. Everyone is special and no one's special because we're all one. Everything I experienced, you've experienced because I believe that there's only one. People mean, what do you mean? I just believe in the one. There's just one, just God. Nothing's not God. Everything is God. So all of our individual experiences is just a manifestation of us believing our ego that says we have a personal story. We have a personal history. Therefore, we have a body. And if we have a body and an ego and a personal story, then we have birth, pain, suffering, death, heaven, hell, rebirth, you know, reincarnation. In reality, there's only God. There's only love. When you wake up to that, everything else just been ultimate play. Unfortunately, all of us that have a body, that includes me, when you have a body, you feel the pain and you believe it. And you feel terrible when somebody dies because you believe it. And you own that story. You own this I-ness, this me, instead of realizing that we, the us, the one I, is all there is. So what happens to you is very important to me. And that's why I don't want to hurt you. That's why I want to love you. How could I hate part of myself? That's what I'm teaching. There's one story I'd like to add that kind of gives a little validity to some of the things I said about my near-death experience. And at the time it happened, I thought I was just delusional. And it wasn't until a couple of days later when I got home from the hospital and I realized that what I experienced was witnessed. So it only puts you in the right frame. What happened? Once upon a time when I had a reading done, one of the predictions besides going to this great Shiva temple and walking uphill, I was also going to encounter a representative of Lord Shiva, you know, like Babaji or Shiva himself. And I was going to be anointed with oil and water and chanted and blessed. And that was going to happen around that same time. When that prediction was made to me in the reading, I thought, well, that's kind of nice. You know, what does that mean? The raindrops are going to come on my head or something. I had no clue. I didn't pay attention. In the hospital, day before I left, I'm laying in the hospital bed. And I look up, and all of a sudden, there's this, like a bowl, like you took a crystal bowl and you turned it upside down over the bed. It's a huge bowl. Right? But on the other side, it's just energy, right? I can't see anything outside of it. It's like an energy, a globe of energy over me. And I look at the end of the bed, and I see Abhiji, this great avatar. No shirt on, long black hair, young looking, barefoot. But in my delusional state, in my Thickness and drug-induced state. I'm seeing Bob G with a pair of Levi's on because this is in America, right? He's barefoot, no shirt, but at the end of my bed, and he's reaching over to my forehead, and he's pouring oil, and, and he's anointing me, and he's chanting in some strange language. I don't know what it was, right? Just odd stuff, but I felt loved. I felt great love. And I'm going through this thing and thinking, well, this is, you know, if you could have delusion, this is a beautiful thing to be loved, right? It's a beautiful thing to be loved and see a Bob G appear to you. It's beautiful. Let it go. Well, when I got home, first day I was home, my adult daughter comes over. And she goes, Dad, uh, you know, our old neighbor, David, uh, he came and visited you at the hospital your uh, your uh, last day. And I said, no, I didn't. I would have saw him. He says, no, no, no. He, he came your last day there. And he walked into the room and he saw some crazy young Indian guy with no shirt on, no shoes on, long hair. And he was pouring stuff on your head, chanting some crazy language. 
and he started to laugh at you and didn't want to embarrass you. So he left. So I told my daughter the story, and she goes, I saw. So there was a situation where the universe, the cosmic smile of the universe says, it wasn't just delusion, buddy. Here you go. Somebody else saw it. So it was kind of nice feedback once in a while when the universe gives you something that gives you validity of what you see. That you're not totally crazy unless everybody's crazy. So that was my visit from Babaji at the hospital. It was just a reminder to me that love continues. I was going to be okay, even though I went for another operation the next month after that. I never worried. I always knew I was loved. That's the bottom line on all these experiences. Don't overanalyze the experience when it happens to you. Accept it as just a gift of love and move on. End of story. You're loved. That's all you need to know. I thought I would share an experience, an unusual experience. And coming from me, a guy that has lots of unusual experiences, this one's uniquely different because everybody has, I'm pretty sure to almost anybody on the spiritual path, has some form of out-of-body experience from time to time. And they kind of don't remember, or they do remember, or it's, it's forgotten. There's suspicion maybe they did. I had a near encounter with the other side that was witnessed. And this involved me living in Danville, California, which is uh, not too far from San Francisco. It was a hot day. I was living in a townhouse. I was upstairs. My wife, she got too hot. She went downstairs, slept on the couch. She's on the couch, and I'm up there. just got through meditating, and I'm thinking about her, and I'm going, I really love my wife. I mean, I really love my life. I can realize this is the beginning of the marriage. I still love her, even though it's 50-some years later. You know, But I just really liked being with my wife and everything. You know, And so she was downstairs, and I was in this meditative state. And all of a sudden, boom, I had a what you'd call a typical out-of-body experience, You know, where you, you leave the body, and you, and you got that cord, silver cord, you know, attached to the body. You can see it. You're floating. You know, you're not a body. You're this astral travel, right? So you you drift through the wall, you go down the stairs, you bump it on the ceiling, you go down there, and I'm crossing over the floor, and she's sleeping on the couch. And all of a sudden, she sits up, and she sees me, and I could tell she sees me because her eyes are like silver dollars, just, she's looking at me, and I float over to the couch, and I sit on the couch, and I sit on the couch, the couch, the sofa, whatever you want to call it, starts levitating about 18 inches off the floor and starts moving around the front room, which scares the heck out of her, of course. And the more scared she gets, the more I can't hang on. So I look at her and I say, whenever you need me, not when you want me, whenever you need me, I'll be here. And then it got, she was too shook up. So it was boom, and I'm back in my 1,000, 1,500-pound body. Next day, she gets up. She goes, oh, my God, I had this terrible nightmare last night. I said, you didn't have a nightmare. Let me tell you what it had. And I told her the whole thing. She goes, hey, you know what my dream was? I said, was it a dream? And then she told me, she says, don't you ever, ever, ever do that to me again, <laughs> which I haven't. But I did, it's not like I did it intentionally. See, a lot of these things that happen to you in the spiritual realm is not something you seek out or do. It's just manifestation of your energy and your frequency. Meet the needs of your emotions and your spirit. And things happen, you know, like you get a glimpse of the future or you you know what's going to happen or you teleport or you go through a wall or you visit people when you're sleeping, which I've had numerous people tell me I do. 
All these things happen as a side effect, side effect, like a drug side effect, right? It's a side effect on your search for love. Because if you're meditating and you're doing all these techniques and stuff because you want to astral travel, you even want self-realization and you want peace and you want calmness. You want, 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 want. You're missing the boat. You should only be meditating, love God. End of story, just to go to God to love. Not to be loved, not to get peace, not to get self-realization, not to get enlightenment, not to get, just to give. And when you start living your life just about not getting loving and not being loved, never be disappointed. You will find great joy as an after effect. But seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added. It's no truer statement. And when I go out and I, and I preach and I give sermons at churches around the United States and the world, actually, there's one story that I found that's received well in the Mormon places I go, or Protestant, Catholic, Hindus, Buddhists, wherever I go, this one story that seems to be one of the favorites that I really get a lot of hits on. Even though I'm talking about Jesus in the story, people can relate to it because it doesn't matter. It's, it's talking about the love, spirituality, and God, and faith. I was traveling down to Sacramento River, American River area in, in Sacramento, and I'm going down this you know, raft with my family, and I had raft but a couple of times, even though I've been living there for a long time. I avoid the sun. I said, okay, to go on this rafting trip. I don't normally do that. And so I'm going down the river, and, and we pull over on the beach, and I look down the beach, and I see a whole crowd of young people standing around, and they're pulling a young man's body out of the water. So I run down the beach, being a former lifeguard, I'm running down the beach. I get down there, and all these people are just standing around, and there's a 17-year-old boy, totally white, ashen white, no pulse, no breath, dead. They're all going, yeah, he's dead, he's dead. You know, And he's laying there. And I hear he was missing nine minutes he was missing. They didn't know where he was at. So they know for at least nine minutes he was underwater. They don't know how long he was underwater, though. It was ice-cold water. And they just had their heads down and just you know, nothing. So I pushed everybody aside. I started giving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. I wouldn't give up. I learned when I was a lifeguard that you don't give up until a fire department guy taps you on the shoulder and says, okay, stop. Right? We got it. So until somebody relieves me, I just keep going. So I'm going to keep giving this guy mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Now realize these were the days, you know, 1990s, 80s, 80s, I guess it was, 1980s when HIV was positive out there. You didn't mouth-to-mouth on people. You were taking your chances, right? So I turned this kid over. I give mouth-to-mouth, mouth-to-mouth, and people are kind of, you know, I hear people, adults going, well, it's enough, you know. I just keep going. But the young people are standing there, and they're just staring at the ground. And I'm going, so I'm getting angry. I'm going, what's wrong with these people? So finally, he comes to the 17-year-old, and, of course, if you give me mouth-to-mouth, you know, when they come back from a drowning, they regurgitate everything up. It's vomit and everything. It's it's not a pretty picture when you got a beard. It's it's a mess. But anyway, you just clean it up and keep going. I got him to stand up. And there was a part of me that was kind of like ticked off. So I looked at this beautiful blonde young girl. She must have, she looked like, like she belonged in Huntington Beach, you know, like a surfer, surfer girl, right? She blonde, you know, looked like she needed to surf, like Gidget, right? And she's just sitting there or standing there looking at me and I'm going, what's wrong with you people? I said, you and your friends, 
you, you let your friend just lay here dead. Nobody did nothing. And she just shook her head. She says, oh, no, mister, we were doing something. I said, what were you doing? She says, me and my friends were praying to Jesus that he would send somebody who knew what he was doing to save our friend. I go, what? She goes, and you came. So I was left speechless when that happened to me at the time. And what's interesting is I told this story about four months ago at one of my healing workshops. For some reason, that had nothing to do with the healing workshop. But we were coming back from a break, and I told the story. And at this workshop, I had a bus full of people that came from a retirement home, one of those you know, senior places, and they were coming in. And, and this lady heard I was giving this free workshop, and she decided to come, right? It was Christmas, about a week before Christmas. And she came. She was depressed. She came, and she thought, well, I, a voice said come. So she came. So when I got through telling the story and everything, I noticed she was teary-eyed. And after the workshop was over, I asked her, well, what's up with that? And she goes, well, she says, all day long I've been despondent, you know, and I was thinking about my son. And then you told that story. I said, well, what about your son? She says, well, he drowned when he was 17 years old. Nobody tried to save him. Drowned. This lady was like in the 80s or something, right? So he died when he was 17, and I missed him. But when you told that story, I knew he was here for me, and he loved me. That's why I tell stories. Sometimes I don't analyze why I'm telling the story. I just reach into the bag and I pull that. I got thousands of stories, but I reach in and I pull out a story and I'm going, you know, somebody here will understand the story. She did. So it's all about, again, once again, about love. Follow up on that. I was crossing the uh, Ganges River. I got back from a trip to the Himalayan mountains in 2004 or something. And I'm crossing over the river. There's a big traffic jam. And in front of me is a trailer being pulled by a truck. And on top of this trailer full of sugar beets was an old guy, beat up, dirty, kind of grubby looking. And me and him were kind of eyeballing each other. I was sitting in the front with the driver. And I'm watching this guy, eyeball to eyeball. We were making a connection. And next thing you know, a bus pulls over, was speeding on the wrong side. It comes in, it crashes into the trailer, jackknifes. This guy flies off the top of this beat trailer, and he lands on the asphalt in the back of his head, just a splat like that and he's just you know blood dribbling out of his nose his mouth and his ears and everything and he looks dead i mean there's no breath there's no pulse felt a connection with this guy so i went up to him and i cradled him i took a bottle of water and i washed his face and i just i didn't get mouth to mouth because i was thinking of my family this guy's got hiv or something he was really dirty and kind of diseased looking and everything and i thought I'm just going to give him love. I just gave him love. I prayed for him. I just gave him love. And all of a sudden, his eyes opened up. Gives me a slight smile. It was okay. So sometimes love is the best medicine. You don't have to do all that, all that fantastic life-saving. Sometimes just loving somebody is enough. It's the case. If you meet a stranger, just give him love.